This is Living Lean, the show that teaches you how to apply the science of nutrition and training to sustainably create your leanest, strongest body and build the most confident version of yourself. I'm your host, Jeremiah Bear. Let's get into the show. What is going on, team? Welcome back to the show. Today, we are talking through the five movement pattern framework for building your own training program. So if you want to start making real progress in the gym again, it starts with you taking a smarter approach to programming your movement. See, the reality is you could train all out for years and never achieve the body composition you want. I see this shit over and over again. I made these mistakes myself for a long time. And the problem is that you never took the time to understand how to program the right movements at the right times. Now, on the flip side, with a solid understanding of the five foundational movement patterns that you should be building your training program around, you suddenly have a simple, effective framework for a functionally strong and aesthetic body. So today's podcast is geared towards teaching you this five movement pattern framework I use anytime I'm creating a training program. All right, let's go ahead and get into it. So First and foremost, you just need a basic understanding of what the system is. So like I mentioned, these five patterns you're about to learn are always the foundation I build my online clients training programs around. They're essential to helping you achieve your most functionally strong and aesthetic body composition ever. Now, the beauty of this approach is as long as you're training, one, a knee dominant movement, two, a hip dominant movement, three, an upper body push, four, an upper body pull, and five, a core movement, you trained every major muscle group in your body. So building your training days around this framework ensures that you're distributing volume as needed to truly create your best body composition ever. Now, this is very much a macro view of programming. If you wanna get into the micro view of programming, I'm gonna link a blog in the show notes here that takes you through specific templates for everything from, I believe it's a twice a week training split, to uh, six times a week training split. And basically they're just plug and play templates. Again, I'm gonna link that in the show notes below. Um, that gets more specific with the micro view of things. This is very much a broad overview of the system you need to understand in order to program smartly. All right, so pattern number one that you need to build your training programs around is going to be knee dominant. So here, your training patterns, primarily centered around movement at the knee joint. These are primarily going to be quad dominant, but you'll also likely work some glutes, hamstrings, and often some core. Now, most often this is going to be some type of squat or lunge pattern. And there's a couple important things to consider here. One being unilateral work. So there are a ton of different variations we can program here, both bilateral, which means using both legs at the same time, and unilateral, which means using only one leg at a time. One of the biggest issues in most people's knee dominant movement selection is a glaring lack of single leg work. And really I found this to be especially true for online clients coming from a CrossFit style of programming. They'll back squat and front squat multiple times per week, but spend very little time, if any, working on single leg strength. But the reality is to build a body composition that's both functionally strong and aesthetically pleasing, you need some single leg work programmed into your training. 
So from the functional standpoint, most people develop imbalances training bilaterally too often. One leg, basically one leg becomes stronger than the other, which leads to pain and an inability to train intensely enough to build the strength or aesthetics that you want. And we see this with both upper body and lower body training, more often with pushing movements, so muscles on the front side of the body, than pulling movements, but one arm or one leg become stronger than the other and eventually this leads to imbalances and often injury which in turn hamstrings your progress plus if you're aiming to build a body that's truly a weapon the ability to do things with one leg is a must because think of how many times where you're in a functional setting and you like get the time to actually drop into a perfect squat like bilateral squat setup and this is exactly why my online clients always get a steady dose of single leg work in their training programs it's just too important to skip now i'm literally going to talk you through a few knee dominant variations that it'd be smart to build your program around so basically when we're working through this framework and again throughout this entire podcast I'm gonna give you some considerations for each of these movement patterns that you want to program, and then I'll talk you through a couple options. Now here it would be smart to choose one to two bilateral and one to two unilateral to progress for multiple mesocycles or training phases. So bilaterally, we have the high bar back squat, a front squat, a safety bar squat, a landmine squat, a machine hack squat, a landmine hack squat, a foam roller hack squat, a cyclist squat, or a leg press. Unilaterally, we can train a dumbbell or barbell walking lunge, a dumbbell or barbell Bulgarian split squat, a dumbbell or barbell front foot elevated split squat, or even a safety bar Bulgarian split squat. One of my favorites. Again, I would choose one to two bilateral variations here and one to two unilateral variations here. Choose ones that seem to fit you best. So you don't have the high bar squat if that doesn't fit you. If you prefer maybe a safety bar squat, that's great. If you don't feel good bilaterally squatting at all, like if any type of barbell squat just doesn't seem to work best for you, you can progress more of these bilateral patterns. You can progress, let's say a split squat, um, a front foot elevated split squat, a walking lunge, and then maybe we have like a leg press or a foam roller hack squat. All right, moving on. Pattern number two is hip dominant. So here, your training patterns focused on movement at the hip joint. These are primarily going to be glute and hamstring dominant, but train some quads and often core as well. And this will most often be what you would consider a hinge pattern. So in comparison to the squat or knee dominant movement pattern, the hip dominant movement pattern often gets neglected. See, many people have been misled to believe that the knee dominant movements are good glute builders. So for example, you always talk about people doing back squats to build their glutes which really often isn't actually the case, but it does lead people to neglecting the movements that are actually great glute and hamstring builders, which is hip dominant movements. So a couple important considerations here. One is going to be low back stress. So one of the main issues most run into with hip dominant movements is that many create a relatively large amount of stress on the lower back. And anecdotally, most online clients have a pretty limited tolerance for movements that put a lot of strain on the lower back before running into issues with low back pain. So this is something we want to take into consideration with creating your program. So basically how I look at this is the the deadlift is abs and we're again we're going to talk about this more in just a second but like a deadlift is a great example of this deadlift puts a lot of stress on your lower back not even with your hip dominant movements but like all your movements you need to consider this so if we're training full body and we have you going right from like a deadlift 
to a barbell bent over row. A conventional deadlift to a conventional bent over row. Those are two movements in a row where we're putting a lot of stress on your lower back. Similarly, if we're like hitting a barbell deadlift and we're hitting a Romanian deadlift again, well, the Romanian deadlift does have a relatively good stimulus to fatigue ratio. If that's immediately following a barbell deadlift, again, we're going to be putting a lot of stress on our lower back, which is more likely to create injury and again, hamstring our progress. I don't think I've ever used that phrase before today. I don't know why I keep saying that, but you get the idea here. So it's very important to consider the amount of low back stress that we're creating here. So for example, if we want this to be a very hip dominant training day or a glute hamstring dominant training day, we're doing, let's say we hit a barbell deadlift. Okay, and then we want to hit another heavier hinge pattern, but we also want it to be something that doesn't put a lot of stress on the low back. So we probably wouldn't go to like a Romanian deadlift. We'd probably go to a barbell hip thrust. Upper back is supported, very minimal stress on the spine, but we can still hit glutes and hamstrings relatively well. All right, next important consideration, and we're going to talk more about what we just touched on, is stimulus to fatigue ratio. So Similar to what we just talked about, it's important to realize that some hip dominant movements are very fatiguing. And this just, this isn't, this idea of stimulus to fatigue ratio isn't just important for hip dominant movements, it's important to consider for all of the movement patterns. But if your weekly dose of these very fatiguing movements is too high, you'll hit a fatigue ceiling before being able to apply enough weekly stimulus to the muscle to grow. Basically, your body will feel smashed because you've created a ton of fatigue, but you haven't actually stressed the muscle enough. You haven't a specific muscle enough. You haven't created enough muscle-specific fatigue to actually encourage your body to grow. So let's say we're talking about hamstrings here. Your goal is to grow your hamstrings. So you hit eight sets of a conventional barbell deadlift, which we know doesn't it does stimulate the hamstrings, but it's probably not the best movement for stimulating your hamstrings. So you probably, well, you have created some stimulus there. It's probably not enough if you're a relatively intermediate to advanced trainee to actually cause growth. But your body, your nervous system, by the point, by this point, you've hit eight sets of barbell deadlifts, your body's smashed. <laughs> for the rest of the week, you're not going to be able to train productively because you just hit it so hard. So, well, you didn't do a good job stimulating the muscle. You did hit this again, quote unquote, fatigue ceiling that, damn it, I keep saying hamstrings, your progress, such a weird saying, but <laughs> hamstrings, your progress, and you don't get much out of the week. So again, to illustrate this point, let's, com- let's compare and contrast a conventional barbell deadlift versus a barbell Romanian deadlift. So a conventional deadlift is likely your strongest lift. It allows you to pull a lot of weight and is also very fatiguing. That said, the muscle building stimulus provided from the amount of fatigue generated isn't that high. So a barbell deadlift from the floor is essentially an isometric for your upper back. Um, And isometrics is a pretty limited amount of research on them, but we know they're not the best for building muscle. Your hamstrings never reach their fully stretched position, which is another, the muscle stretch is another important component of muscle growth. And there's no eccentric, excuse me, component to the lift. So the eccentric is basically the lowering portion of a movement. So again, thinking after the top of the, you've pulled from the floor, you're at the top of the movement, you're lowering it down. So 
The eccentric is, again, a slow controlled eccentric. It doesn't have to be like five seconds or anything like that, but taking the time to control your eccentric is, again, an important part of muscle growth. But the reality is for barbell deadlifts, most people just essentially drop the weight, so there's not a strong muscle building component there either. So the result of this is a lot of fatigue, but not that much stimulus as far as building muscle goes. When we're talking about strength, like purely for strength, the deadlift is a great movement. For building muscle, not so much. Now let's look at the Romanian deadlift. So here, you achieve a much greater range of motion, and you get a big ass stretch on the hamstrings with this movement. There's also a very strong focus on the eccentric portion of the lift, or the negative of the lift, but the weight you lift and the load on your spine is much less. So the movement has a lower quote unquote fatigue cost, but likely creates more stimulus for most. And if you've done both the movements, you'll know. Like your glutes and hamstrings straight up just feel much more disrupted after Romanian deadlift. Whereas you'll feel likely a higher sense of overall fatigue after a conventional deadlift. Now, this isn't at all to say that you shouldn't do conventional deadlifts, but it's important to think about the fatigue costs you're racking up when programming them. So now again, like <laughs> this isn't me at all shooting on conventional deadlifts. They're a good strength movement, not a great hypertrophy movement. So for example, let's say you're following a six times a week, upper, lower, upper, lower, upper, lower split. Um, a high fatigue, low stimulus programming for your main hinge pattern would look something like, okay, day one, we're going to do a conventional deadlift. Day two, we're going to do a sumo deadlift. And day three, we're going to do another conventional deadlift just in a different rep range. But smart fatigue management for your hip hinge pattern would look something like maybe day one, we do a conventional deadlift and day one is more like a strength focus day. Day two, we do a barbell hip thrust and or a glute dominant back extension. Both great ways to train this hinge pattern, but very, very little stress on the spine. And then day three, we're gonna hit a Romanian deadlift. So by this point, it's been four to five days since we've trained our conventional deadlift. Romanian deadlift puts a lot less stress on the spine, still some, but a lot less. But now, we're training a lot of hinge, we're able to train a lot of hinges across the course of the week, really hit your glutes and hamstrings well, but we've done a much better job of managing overall fatigue. This is another thing that many modalities of training like CrossFit often get wrong, and it absolutely kills your ability to change your body while leaving you feeling smashed in the process. So truly, this idea of stimulus to fatigue ratio is something that's very important to consider. Speaking of important considerations, um, many lunge patterns can be made into a hip-dominant hybrid. So by focusing on intent, many of our lunge variations become great movements for glute and hamstring development. So for my online shop clients chasing functional aesthetics, this is one of my favorite ways to kill two birds with one stone. As you're now training the often neglected glutes and hamstrings, plus adding in more single leg work. So a few cues to think about here. One, you want to achieve a bigger stretch on the glutes and hamstrings. So if we're doing, let's say, a deficit reverse lunge here, okay, I really want you to lean forward and I want you to focus on initiating the movement by pushing your hips back instead of driving the knee forward. On the way up, so at the bottom of the movement, you're going to have a lot more of a forward lean. Your hips are going to be pushed back a bit further, which is going to create a much larger stretch on the glutes and the hamstrings. On the way up, you're going to focus on driving your weight through your front heel and extending at your hips. So basically think pushing your hips up forwards towards your knee 
instead of extending out the knee, which would be pushing your knee back towards your hips. So since your glutes and hamstrings are primarily responsible for hip extension, this will make the movement more hip dominant. Now, a few hip dominant variations would be smart to build your program around. So here again, I'd choose one to two bilateral movements to progress for multiple mesocycles or training phases. Now, anecdotally, as long as we're training um, lots of single leg, like split squat, reverse lunge, different variations like that within our knee dominant pattern, we don't need as much um, unilateral work for our hip dominant pattern. And often I found that unilateral work for hip dominant movements just becomes somewhat ineffective as balance becomes a large issue. So I'm more of a fan of programming heavier as far as single leg work goes, again, on the squat or knee dominant pattern and less so when it comes to our hinges. So with our hinges, some bilateral variations, sumo deadlifts, barbell deadlifts, barbell elevated deadlift, trap bar deadlifts, a barbell or a dumbbell Romanian deadlift, a barbell hip thrust, a glute focused back extension, landminer Romanian deadlifts, and the glute ham raise. And then as far as single leg work goes, we have rear foot elevated deadlifts, single leg Romanian deadlifts, single leg landminer Romanian deadlifts, staggered stance Romanian deadlifts, or dumbbell or barbell reverse lunge, using the cues I talked about earlier to make it more hip dominant, a dumbbell or barbell deficit reverse lunge, a Bulgarian split squat, and a glute dominant lunge. All right, pattern number three is the upper body push. So here, your training patterns focus primarily on movement at the shoulder joint and pushing a load away from your body. These are primarily going to be training your chest, shoulders, and triceps. So we can really split your upper body push movements into two variations. One, we have horizontal presses. These will be more chest dominant, but will also train your front delts or the front of your shoulders and triceps. Next, or number two, we have vertical presses. These will be more shoulder dominant, but will also train a good amount of triceps and some chest, varying depending on your torso angle. Now, it's incredibly unlikely that you're not including some upper body pushing in your training. And for good reason, really. If you're chasing an aesthetically pleasing body composition, a strong chest and a well-developed shoulders are a must. So a few important things to consider here. One is the ratio of horizontal to vertical pushing. So here's the thing when it comes to pressing. Most of us can horizontal press with ease, but many of us are lacking the prerequisite mobility to press vertically too often. I've also found that many online clients simply can't handle handle more than six to eight hard sets of vertical pressing per week before their shoulder joints start to feel beat up. Most of our bodies just can't hold up to a lot of vertical pressing every week. Plus, we have to consider that while horizontal presses do a great job of stimulating both the chest and front delts, vertical presses do a pretty shit job of simulating the chest. So if you're doing a lot of vertical pressing, the rate limiter for your horizontal presses will be your delt fatigue, not chest fatigue like we would want. So basically too much vertical pressing can hinder your ability to stimulate your chest, but lots of horizontal pressing, while it will stimulate your chest, won't hinder your ability to stimulate your shoulders. So all of this means that it's likely a good idea for most of you to devote the majority of your pressing volume or number of hard sets per week to horizontal presses and keep the vertical presses limited to approximately four to eight sets per week. Next thing to consider, or next thing to consider is dumbbell work. So 
In my opinion, dumbbells are the single best training tool for someone like you who's chasing functional aesthetics. Now, barbells are great for adding load, and don't get it twisted, they're a big piece of many of my online clients' programs, but they also keep you locked in one specific position as you press. This becomes a problem because this position often causes irritation or pain for online clients with banged up shoulders, and the reality is 90% of us have banged up shoulders. So the beautiful thing about dumbbells is they allow you much more customization in your pushing movements. You have more free movement and can experiment with which hand positions feel best for your unique anatomy and injury history. So truly in my experience, dumbbell presses, making the majority of presses dumbbell presses just works so much better because clients have so much more free movement to really feel what position feels best for them specifically. And really for most chasing a functionally strong aesthetic physique, limiting barbell presses to one to two variations per week and devoting the rest of the pushes to dumbbell work is a good rule of thumb. So just like before, we're gonna talk through now a few upper body horizontal push variations and then following this, a few vertical push variations, it'd be smart to build in your program. So as far as horizontal push variations, I would choose one to three of these to progress for multiple mesocycles slash training phases. So we have bilaterally barbell or dumbbell bench press, barbell or dumbbell low incline bench press, barbell or dumbbell incline bench press, barbell or dumbbell floor press, and dips or weighted dips. Unilaterally, we have a one-arm dumbbell low incline bench press, a dumbbell alternating incline press, and a one-arm floor press. And then as far as vertical push variations go, and here I would work in one to two variations to progress across a mesocycle. Bilaterally, we have a barbell or dumbbell standing overhead press, a barbell or dumbbell seated overhead press, a barbell push press, a dumbbell Arnold press, a barbell or dumbbell Z press, and a Viking press. <laughs> That's actually, the Viking press is a dope movement that very few people know about. Look it up. Unilaterally, we have a half kneeling one-arm dumbbell shoulder press, a half kneeling landmine press, a dumbbell standing one-arm shoulder press, and a half kneeling Philly press. All right, moving on to pattern number four, we have the upper body pull. So here, you're training patterns centering around movement of the shoulder blades and shoulder joint and pulling a load towards your body or pulling your body towards an object, usually a pull-up bar or a barbell. These are primarily going to be training your back and your biceps. Now, similar to your presses, you can split your pulling movements up into two different variations. We have horizontal pulls and vertical pulls. So the first important thing to consider here is your execution of your pulls. Because your back is made up of a plethora of muscles, but generally with your pulling work, you're focusing on targeting either your lats or your rhomboids. Now this is a very broad generality, but when we're rowing, when we're pulling, not necessarily rowing, but anytime we're pulling, we typically, okay, we want this to be more trap dominant, or we want this to be more, or excuse me, we want this to be more lat dominant, or we want this to be more rhomboid dominant. Now, both vertical and horizontal pulls can be both lat focused or rhomboid focused, depending on your execution of the movement. So for example, a pull down will be more lat focused if you stay relatively upright and focus on driving the elbows low to the hips, which is basically going to cause your lats to shorten. 
but a pulldown will be more raw blade focused. If you lean back, you flare your elbows wide and you focus on driving your elbows back, plus really squeezing your shoulder blades back in together. This will really lead to your rhomboid muscle shortening. Um, a dumbbell row would be more lat focused if you focus on driving your elbow low to your hip as you row the weight up. But a dumbbell row would be more rhomboid focused if you allow your elbow to flare more and focus on pulling your shoulder blade back as you row and you probably your touch point as opposed to like thinking pulling that dumbbell towards your hip. If you're thinking pull that dumbbell towards your chest or your shoulder, okay, this is going to be a more rhomboid dominant row. But I think you get the idea here. Now, while the specific ratio of rhomboid to lat focus pulling movements depends highly on you as an individual, most will build their best physique with a relatively balanced blend of both. Another important th consideration here is the fact that most have neglected their backs. So similar to our conversation earlier about how most people have spent significantly more time training their quads, accidentally or not, than glutes and hamstrings, most individuals have also spent more time training the more visible muscle of the upper body, which is your push muscles like your chest and delts, and neglected their backs. So with online clients, I found this to be very true for both men and women alike. This can lead to some imbalances and often pain when pressing. And the cure for this is a steady dose of lots of well-executed pulling movements. So a few horizontal pull variations it'd be smart to build your program around. And here I would choose two to three to progress for multiple mesocycles or training phases. So bilaterally, we have a barbell bent row, we have a dumbbell chest supported row, we have a dumbbell seal row, a T-bar row, a Smith machine row, a trap bar row, a head supported dumbbell row, and the Helms row. Unilaterally, we have a one-arm dumbbell row, a one-arm barbell row, the Meadows row, and the one-arm T-bar row. And then when we're looking at vertical pull-down variations or vertical pulling variations, I should say, basically we have all of your cable pull-down variations. So wide grip pull-down, neutral grip pull-down, close grip pull-down, reverse grip pull-down, straight arm pull-down, um, and then all your chin-up and pull-up variations. Not a lot of single arm um, variations here outside of a cable or a band moto row. All right, and then the final pattern, pattern number five is core. So here, your training patterns focused on movement at the spine or resisting movement at the spine. So the most important consideration here is just making sure that you have smart programming because it takes a special type of programming to achieve functional core strength and stability along with the looks. We want to move and feel just as good as we look. So basically you're chasing both aesthetics and performance. Now, if your training is anything like most online clients before starting coaching, you've probably done lots of crunches and leg raises and not much else. So the problem here is, well, this focus on strictly spinal flexion movements, so basically think crunch and reverse crunch or leg raise variations where you're flexing on the spine. Well, this is fine for building up your six pack muscle. So the rectus abdominis, which is the visible layer of muscle we consider our quote unquote abs. Your core is many more muscles than just the rectus abdominis. So by only training spinal flexion, you're not training most of the muscles that help resist movement. So we have the rectus abdominis, which assists trunk flexion, which basically looks like bending forward or crunching. We have the erector spinae, which helps with trunk extension or bending backwards. We have the internal and external obliques, which help with trunk rotation, which looks like twisting. We have the obliques, rectus abdominis, and the erector spinae, which are responsible for lateral trunk flexion or bending to the side. 
we have the transverse abdominis, which is responsible for abdominal compression, which is basically think like pulling your belly button to your spine. We have the multifidus, transverse abdominis, obliques, and erector spinae, which are all responsible for spinal stability or your spine staying stable during movement. So as you can gather from this, only training your rectus abdominis leaves a lot on the table when it comes to developing a truly functional core. Neglecting the rest of the core manifests itself as trouble stabilizing your trunk and often low back pain when doing movements like squats and deadlifts. This leaves you unable to get functionally strong and build a lean, athletic body you want. To feel your strongest and most confident, you need to follow a smarter core programming protocol. So, when we're talking about training your core for aesthetics, um, I want to start with basically how do we train your abs for looks, we could say. So a core that looks great is going to come primarily from, from development of your rectus abdominis, or basically the muscles that assist in spinal flexion. So of course, it makes sense for us to focus on spinal flexion movements here so basically leg raises knee raises and reverse crunch variations and then sit up and crunch variations now like every other muscle group you're best suited to stick to the 5 to 30 rep range most of the time when training your abs and pursue effective reps basically meaning most of your sets need to be within a few reps of failure so a few spinal flexions variations it'd be smart to build your program around so here again i would choose one to two to progress for multiple mesocycles we have Cable crunches, weighted crunches, decline crunches, weighted decline crunches, V-ups, reaching sit-ups, and the Sicilian crunch. And then we have reverse crunches, decline reverse crunches, hanging knee raises, hanging straight leg raise, and strict toes to bar. Now, so again, that's the aesthetic portion of your core training. When we're talking about training your core for strength and performance, this portion of your training takes you from just looking good to a truly weaponized body. Your core is geared up for functional strength and performance. Now here, I'm going to be using the term anti-movement to basically encompass all the other core movements and muscle groups you don't hit when you're training your rectus abdominis. So a few movement, or excuse me, anti-movement variations, it'd be smart to build your program around. So for your strongest, most functional core, I would progress at least one variation from two out of the three categories below across a mesocycle. So first we have anti-extension. Here you're working to resist extension at the spine. Good movements for this would be the ab wheel, TRX fallouts, renegade rows, hollow body sweeps, hollow body flutter kicks, hollow body holds, long lever pelvic tilt planks, modified candlestick, and slider body sauce. Next we have anti-rotation, where the goal is to resist rotation at the spine. So here we have anti-rotation dead bugs, Paloff press holds, renegade rows, Swiss ball stir the pot, bird dog rows, half kneeling push pulls, and landmine bus drivers. And finally, we have anti-lateral flexion. Here, you're working to resist bending sideways at the spine. So here we have things like the kettlebell bottoms up plus farmer's walk, chaos farmer's walks, suitcase carries, farmer's carries, zercher carries, side planks, and side plank plus row combo. Now, <laughs> we've gone through all five movement patterns. So basically to put all this together, from here, you can add in accessory work and variations as needed, depending on your current goals, weaknesses, or specific muscles you want to build. But can you consider these five patterns, the foundational staples, you should always be focused on progressing weekly. 
You have the framework. Now it's time to apply what you've learned and go build an absolute weapon of a body that looks great as well. Now, if you'd rather take the guesswork out of the process and have a coach build you a customized science-backed program based on the principles in this podcast, click the link in the show notes to apply for online coaching with me. All right. And that is all I have for you guys today. Thank you for tuning in.